We're in Judges chapter 1. Last week we looked at Caleb's daughter, Aksa, who was given to Othniel, who happened to be Caleb's nephew. Othniel, he has fought and conquered Kerjath's Sefer, and Aksa obviously is a beautiful young woman. She is a prize. Caleb gives her lands uh, upon her marriage, gives her inheritance, but she also wants springs of water. And Caleb gives her water. He gives her the upper and the lower springs, and he gives them to her as a blessing. To have land, to have land for crops or land for cattle, you need water. And uh, water is also very needed in a Christian's life, and that being symbolic of the Holy Spirit. We thirst. God gives us a thirst after himself. In the natural, we thirst after water, but in the spiritual, we thirst after our Lord. But Jesus tells us, he says, drink freely of the water that I give. Because you go out there in everyday life and you encounter different situations. You watch the evening news and you realize how much of God's spirit you really need. Without God's Holy Spirit, we flounder. It's just that simple. We fall into sin. We find ourselves separated from our Lord and our God. And perhaps the greatest sin of the church is we try to live a life pleasing to God apart from the Holy Spirit. Living a life uh, that is motivated by our own desires, our own fleshly logic, it can be devastating to our faith. And our Christianity is not based upon logic. It is logical, but it's not based upon logic. Jesus suffered and died for us. He suffered for all of mankind. And because Jesus suffered, we have the church being born. And Christianity is not a denomination. It is not a well-conceived plan, an organization for the betterment of mankind. Although it is for the betterment. Christianity is the power of God his love towards man. Man's idea of what's best for the world is, uh, it's almost absurd. Look at some of the things we see man passing down as laws and regulations upon us today. But as we journey through this book of Judges, 
We will witness firsthand what we call the depravity of man, man turning to sin given the first opportunity. Israel is an example of mankind's propensity to sin, to disobey God, to choose sin over God. So allow me to sort through some of the verses here in uh, Judges chapter 1, and we'll start with verse 19. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the inhabitants of the mountains, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland, because they had chariots of iron. God is with Judah. He's told him, they, the people have asked who should go up. Judah's chosen to go up and drive out the inhabitants of the mountains. And he does this. But then you come to the valleys and the lowland. And he can't drive out the Canaanites because they had chariots of iron. That sounds sort of weak when you compare it to the power of God. <laughs> this is one of those times where God wanted Judah to move forward in faith, and he would not. God has declared to Judah, I'm with you. Go conquer the land. Take the land of the Canaanites. But the battle becomes bigger than Judah's faith. It becomes bigger than he envisions what God should be. And he's able to trust God for the mountain area, but the lowlands of the Canaanites, it's too much for him because they had chariots of iron. Wow. <laughs> now that may sound like a good excuse if you live then, but think about that. Anything that you put in front of God's possibilities of him performing his word is an excuse. Our lack of faith, knowing that we do know God, our lack of faith can be insulting to God. He's God. In verse 20, we see Caleb. He drives out. He expels the sons of the giants in Hebron. We do not hear Caleb declare, look how big those giants are. Man! They could squash us like bugs. No, we read Caleb drove them out. Caleb was a man of faith. He was a man of action, and he drives out the giants. In verse 21, Benjamin, uh, they did not drive out the Jebusites who held control over Jerusalem at that time. And the Jebusites, they end up intermarrying with the Benjamites, and this goes on, and even today, centuries after this took place, Jerusalem is known as a divided city racially. And in verses 22 through 26, we have the house of Joseph, and they're spying out Bethel. They're to take Bethel. And the leaders of Joseph's tribe, they're plotting how they might take this fortified city. And they happen to see a man come out of the city of Bethel, and they persuade this man to show them the entrance 
into the city, perhaps through a water tunnel or something like this. And they tell him, show us the entrance and we will not kill you. So he shows Joseph and all of the tribe of Joseph the entrance and they proceed to strike Bethel with the sword and they kill many. But that same man that showed him the entrance, he goes up into Syria and he builds another city. And Israel must later in their history deal with battling against the city that this man's built. The list of tribes who did not obey God by driving out the pagan Canaanites, it will go on and on. It goes through all 12 tribes. They will try to drive them out, but if that looks hard, they would then uh, put the people of that area under tribute or under taxation, and they would then become wealthy versus obeying God. Choosing to make money by taxation and coexist with a pagan society who worships idols. And at this time, Israel is an extremely strong nation when they first entered into Canaan. But they chose, m much of Israel chose to rather profit from the people that are there versus obeying God. To coexist with evil people has become a pattern in Israel at this time. God has a reason for Israel to uh, completely conquer the land because these pagal, pagal, pagan idol-worshiping tribes, they will pull Israel down into sinful behavior where Israel is just as evil as they are in their worship of idols. And within a short time, Israel is there right alongside of them. And the lesson there for us is be careful who you associate with. It's important who your friends are. It's important who you uh, fellowship with. Choose good friends. I always told my children, you choose good friends and you'll find dad saying yes to you a lot more than if you choose bad friends. So it just makes sense. We're to choose good friends, friends that will be faithful to us, will lift us up in prayer and be an encouragement to us. But God, he considers worship of Baals as worship of satanic beings. And to God, worship of Baal is adultery before him. We serve a jealous God, by the way who does not only know what is best for us, but God refuses to allow us to put him into what we would call, or what he would call, a secondary position. God will not take a secondary position. The sovereignty of God does not allow him any place in our life except number one. God says, you don't make me number one, I will not be number two. God never says okay to us when we would worship other things. He never says, okay, go ahead, worship those other things, but don't forget me. No, God never says that. 
He says, either I'm God or I'm not, and I will not take a secondary role in your life. But God will allow his people Israel to stray away from him, go the way of idol worship, only to show Israel the great tragedy of worshiping idols. When we study ancient Israel, as in the book of Judges, it causes me to be very fearful for my country, America. And I think a lot of you share that. We're fearful of what we see happening in America. To me, America, in my lifetime, has begun what I call the great apostasy. In our free and open society, we now tolerate the greatest of sins, sins that are considered unto death. Think of the names that we call sin sometimes. Adultery is so commonplace, we call it an affair. Isn't, boy, doesn't that brighten a picture up? It's no longer adultery or fornication, it's an affair. Homosexuality, it becomes a lifestyle choice. Abortions, for many it's simply a way of birth control. And on and on goes the spiral of morality in America until we cannot take our children into public restrooms. Where have we come? Our politicians are forcing upon us sinful practices, and they're doing it all across the nation. Our political leaders are openly loving the ways of darkness, forsaking what is right. Openly doing it. And in Judges, we see Judah refusing to obey God and act in a way of faith. Judah refused to even try and take the lowlands or the valleys because... They had chariots of iron. Judah is more than willing to compromise versus being a man of faith. And faith for Judah is simply to obey God. But let me get you to turn to Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at a man of faith. The centurion. Centurions are always mentioned in the New Testament in a good light, by the way. This centurion, he sends a delegate to Jesus, and he has a request of Jesus. He's pleading with Jesus, these delegates are, on behalf of his servant who is ill. A centurion is simply one who is in charge of a hundred soldiers. This centurion absolutely understands human behavior and authority. He's got it down. So let's read Luke 7, the first 10 verses. 
Now, when Jesus concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends of him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servants, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, and those who were sent returned to the house and found the servant well who had been sick. We have just read how the centurion sent Jewish elders to Jesus. And these elders plead with Jesus. They're begging Jesus to come and heal the centurion's servant. The centurion understand Jesus has power over sickness, even sickness unto death. The soldier knows Jesus is either divine, he is either God, or at least he's a great prophet of God. He's got that down. He realizes that. The fact that the centurion sends others to plead for his servant is a great indicator of his character. The centurion, he doesn't feel adequate to approach Jesus because Jesus is a Jew and he is a Gentile. So what does he do? He sends Jewish elders, respected Jewish men, to go to Jesus on his behalf. Jesus agrees. He says, all right, I'll come with you. And so the delegation, he's on his way to the centurion's house, and he's on his way to heal the servant. We find our Lord, Jesus, he's moved with compassion. And he's moved with compassion for a Roman soldier that is showing compassion. This Jewish servant, he was probably a Jewish servant, he's in the... Uh, in Israel, and he's nothing but a lowly servant to this centurion. Yet he's concerned for him. And we find Jesus, he's amazed at this compassion that the centurion has, and he's also amazed at his faith. The centurion, his words bear repeating. For in his words we see the power of God, 
and the faith of the centurion, and it comes forward. First off, he says, Lord, who am I that you should come under my roof? And this simply shows the great humility of the centurion. He says, I'm a man under authority. And I say to one, to go and he goes. To another, come and he comes. And my servants obey me. And when Jesus hears these words, he's surprised. No, it's much greater than surprise. Jesus marvels. Wait a minute. God marveling at the behavior or the belief of a man? Jesus marveled. For whatever reason, Jesus wasn't privy to the information of this man's great faith. And so when he sees it come forward, he marvels. For Jesus to marvel means that Jesus is in awe of the centurion's faith. Jesus is astonished at the true understanding that this centurion has of authority and of faith. Now this centurion could have sent soldiers to Jesus, his own soldiers, to come and heal his servant. But he sends elders of the Jews. And these elders plead with Jesus to come because this man is worthy, Lord. Jesus is on his way. And then he is stopped by another group of friends from the centurion. And they have a message for Jesus. Lord, do not trouble yourself. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. This strikes Jesus so strongly that Jesus not only marvels, he turns to the crowd that is following him and he declares, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. That's Jesus marveling over a man's faith. Jesus only marvels two times in his entire ministry. You can read, and he only marvels two times. This is one of the good times. There is another time Jesus marvels, and that is not a good time. And that's in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus marveled that those who should know him, and he marvels at their unbelief. Wow. One marvel for good, one marvel for bad. But Jesus, being Jesus, there is no way he will disappoint that centurion's faith. The friends, the elders, they return to the centurion's house, and they find the servant that was near death, well, he's now perfectly well. And what a great testimony of the centurion's faith and what a truth that Jesus did marvel. But how does that relate to Judah? Judah, 
who would not even try to take the lowlands because of the chariots of iron. Judah. Faith in God is realizing truth. It's realizing the power, the authority of God. In our opening Christian uh, reading of Peter, Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say I am? Finally, Peter says, you're the Christ. Great authority there. How good it is to know that the Lord we serve is the Christ. How good it is for us to know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Think with me here. Jesus, all he needed to do for this servant to get his healing was speak a word. That's all he had to do. He speaks a word, the centurion is healed. Or not is healed, but his servant is healed. It is no more difficult for our Lord to heal a terminal illness than it is a common cold. It's no different. All he has to do is speak, and we have it. And in Luke's account of the servant's healing, it appears that the centurion and Jesus never meet physically. They never come together. They only communicate through the friends that the centurion sent. What does that tell us? It tells me, maybe you, we don't have to chase after faith healers to pray for us. We don't have to pursue them. All any of us really need is to have simple faith in Jesus. All we need is for Jesus to say the word and we have what we ask for. We can have our healing. Faith sometimes, I think, is totally misunderstood. Faith, we know what Hebrew says of faith, the substance of things hoped for. But faith is also realizing God is God. He's not inferior in any way, shape, or form. He does not require us to be perfect to receive our request. Faith is simply realizing who God is. This centurion realized who Jesus was. He realized he wasn't worthy for Jesus to even come into his house. He sends Jewish men, Jewish elders to talk to him. Then he sends another delegation. He got thinking about it. Hey, wait, I don't need Jesus to come here. Just say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. And that's what marveled Jesus. 
if we can truly understand who God is and that he loves us, that he loves us, he wants to show himself strong on our behalf. It's not trying to stir up our faith into things that uh, we perhaps really desire. No, it's realize who God is and that he already loves me. He already has compassion on me and he desires to meet my needs. Now, does God always heal? No, he doesn't. But all he has to do for your situation to change is speak the word and your life can change. God had given the Canaanites into Judah's hand. All Judah needed to do was obey what God had told him. Take the Canaanites and the victory would have been his. But he missed his opportunity. And I'm convinced as believers we sometimes miss all that God wants for us by simply not asking or believing. Do we ask? Do we believe? To believe in Scripture means to trust in and rely upon. It's not just, oh, okay, I can understand that in my head. No, it's trusting in and relying upon. And so, no wonder that Jesus marvels at this Roman centurion, his understanding of authority and his understanding of who Jesus was. If we understand that, my friend, we have great opportunities and healings. Whatever we need, our Lord is faithful. There will be people in the prayer area who would be happy to agree with you on prayer concerning any issue that you might have. God is not just limited to physical healings. He's God. Understand that. And we will, uh, we will pray now, so let me get you to stand. But take advantage of the opportunity to trust in God with all your heart. Amen. Father God, thank you that... You are sovereign. You know what's best. You will not act out of your will. We know that. But Lord, so many times I think we miss having you touch or having you provide simply because we don't ask. And Lord, that's nothing more than a lack of faith on our part. So, Lord, here we are this morning. We're asking you, our Lord and our Savior, our all-powerful God, speak that healing word into our lives, whether that be 
over a physical illness, whether that be over some problem we're dealing with, Lord, we pray that you would intervene and speak the word of healing into our lives. We pray for this and ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.